This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Um, how do you, like, link up the audio from, like, the actors, like, speaking the voices to the actual animals? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, so some people think that we animate these things first and then dub the actors over top of them. And in fact, it's completely the opposite. We write the script and we bring the actors in first. Actually, we, we hired Jason and Jennifer almost three years ago and they started coming in and recording for us. And as we'll uh, bring them into a recording booth like this with a mic set up, they'll act out the lines, we'll record them. And we have people called track readers and track readers have the tedious job of stepping through a scene frame by frame and figuring out where every vowel and consonant falls on every 24 frames of film. And that is given to our animators. Then our animators take that information and then they block out the scene. They can, they'll start, they're using uh, rigs that are very much like puppets uh, in, CG in CG films. And so they'll start by blocking out uh, their acting to the actors, uh, the actors' reads. But it's really, we ask the actors to give us so much in the booth because they're not really interacting with other actors. We usually, uh, record them alone, and so we have to have them use their imaginations, but it's all just uh, great acting that's given to our animators, and our, our animators kind of geek out a little bit too, because we're constantly filming the actors that are in the sound booth, and so as the characters start to develop, the, like, the fox starts to look more and more like Jason Bateman, and like the, 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 uh, the Cape Buffalo uh, Chief Bogo starts to look and take on the mannerisms of Idris Elba, and it's a really weird phenomenon, but that's how we do it. We kind of, that's, that's how we start. Uh, what would you say was the most challenging part of creating the film? Uh, the, you know, the story was a real, a real tricky one. So when I pitched this five years ago, it was not called Zootopia. It was called Savage Seas, which was, it was a James Bond spy movie with, where the lead character was a jackrabbit, a spy jackrabbit named Jack Savage, and I had this big plan, I had this big plan to make many films called Savage Seas and Savage City and the Savage Earth, and it was gonna be freaking cool. And I made the, I even did the posters, like if you, if you buy the art of book, you'll see these posters that I made, and it didn't work. Because I kept, I kept pitching this idea to John Lasseter and to our story trust, which is the other directors, and uh, I think because there had been a lot of Bond movies out in, at the time, I think people were kind of burned out on the spy thing, and so they said, the spy thing's not super interesting, but this first act that you have where the jackrabbit lives in this all animal city feels like it could be the whole movie, so why not consider making that the whole movie? So I said, sure, I'll throw out all my cool posters, throw away my plans for future movies, and then I dove into this. And that's when we really dove into about nine months of research for this movie, figuring out how to build uh, an, actual, an actual animal city. And so, but yeah, the story, the story is always the trickiest thing. What are the biggest pipeline differences between 2D animation and 3D animation? Oh, that's a good question. So in, back in the day, I was a 2D animator for a long time before I, I worked in CG. And it's really interesting because a 2D animation project, if you say, say you want a new character design, a character designer can sit down and in one afternoon do a sketch, and then in the 2D days, they could give that sketch to an animator, and the animator could draw, a, animate a scene with that character by the end of the week. CG animation is completely the opposite. Um, it takes forever to build all this stuff up front before we ever get to animating the film. For example, a character like Nick, the fox, Nick Wilde, from a concept drawing 
uh, to finish concept drawing to the finished character where he's actually moving around on screen is one year. So it's, it's, it's incredible. And that's going through dozens and dozens of people. That's going through character designers and groomers that put the fur on, riggers that actually set up the rig uh, and the character and modelers. And it is in, it's incredibly complex, which is why it takes so many people. That's why we have 800 people working on these films. But, uh, but yeah, it's completely the opposite. Because back in the day, I thought that seeing uh, two CG films come in, I thought, wow, that's going to make it a lot easier and cheaper. And it's not at all. It's way more expensive. It's way more complicated because we keep pushing the films to be able to be bigger and bigger and bigger. And Zootopia is honestly the most complex film that Disney has ever made. It's just a massive, massive world. And then someone else had a mic over here. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm really interested in the directing process. And like, I was wondering, like, you and uh, Rich Moore collaborated, obviously. Mm -hmm. So like, can you talk about, like, like, did you guys have like specific rules like when making a movie? Like, elaborate on that, please. I'm always right. That's the rule. <laughs> you guys right now. No, uh, written, no, actually, it's great. I've done, I've done three, uh, I've directed three movies at Disney Animation. Each time I've had um, a directing partner. And because these films are so huge, uh, for animation that works great because we, tr we really try, um, we have to ask us thousands of questions every week that we have to decide. And our job is to kind of keep the big picture of the film in mind and to steer the ship in the right direction. So it really does help to have a partner to bounce these ideas off of and to make sure that we're doing gut checks to make sure we're steering everyone in the right, right direction. And everyone um, who comes onto the film brings something of their own experience. I, you know, like Rich brings his, his experience from The Simpsons. I bring my sort of 2D tradition from 20 years at Disney. Our head of story, Josie Trinidad, has a, a, a great sense of emotion and storytelling. Um, Jim Reardon, another of our heads of story, has a great sense of uh, love for noir films. So you'll see that Zootopia has a lot of noir uh, influences in it. And um, that's what makes the film so layered and rich is because I think we do all get in a room and because we're passionate about film and we're passionate about storytelling, we try to bring what we love uh, to the films. And it's a very, very, very collaborative studio. There's no, I don't think there's any place in the world like it, maybe except for Pixar. Pixar works in a very similar way. But um, it's not an auteur system at all. It's not like here's a, here's a brilliant filmmaker who has a single vision for this film. It's really a team of people who are getting together and using all of their talents and their, all of their brains to figure out what's going to make the story work, uh, work better. But it's, that's, that's very unique to animation. I'm not sure that live action is the same way. But. And then there's a question over here. Hi, Larry. Hi. Oh, hey. Um, what was your big break? What was the event that grants you artistic liberty and creative opportunities within Walt Disney? Oh, the big, uh, well, you know, well, they said, they said that um, when they uh, introduced me, they, they mentioned that I, d I worked as a tour guide in, in, the, in uh, Disney World, and that's true, because I went down, I finished college, well, here's the story, okay, here's the story, you, got, you guys got time. Um, anyway, so uh, in 1988, long time ago, I went down to Disney World on vacation, and they were just building an animation studio down there, and I was a, I was a film student. I thought I wanted to go to school to be a live-action film editor and go down to Hollywood and work as an editor. And uh, I went down to Florida, and the, I saw they were building this animation studio down there, and I thought, that's interesting that they're building this down there. And on that same trip, I saw Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And I had liked animation growing up, but that film, to me, was really brave and edgy and different, and Disney had made it. And there were all these characters like Bugs Bunny and all these other characters that they had kind of coordinated together, like Spielberg had gone out and kind of made all these different studios cooperate to make this noir film, which I, uh, it was a genre that I loved. And I thought, well, Disney is, that's something that's very smart and unexpected from, from Disney. And then a couple years later, uh, Little Mermaid came out. 
And Little Mermaid was very influential on me because I looked at that Ariel, Ariel character and Ariel to me was a living, breathing human being. There was something, I, I liked other uh, heroines before in Disney history like Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella, but they always seemed a little blank, maybe just a little too simple and two dimensional, but Ariel seemed like a real living, breathing uh, person to me. So I said, this is something special, I have to be a part of this. So. After I graduated, I graduated from the Evergreen State College in uh, Washington State, which is a hippie school with a clam as a mascot. Check it out, look it up online, it's true. And uh, in 1990, I, I, I finished up there and I said, I'm gonna go down to Florida and make my fortune and I'm gonna apply to be an animator. And I thought, I'll get right in. And I put my portfolio together and I submitted it and I got turned down. And then I said, well, I'll try again. And I tried not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times to get in, so it took me about two years to get into the Disney animation program down there. And in the meantime, I made a living working at the Magic of Disney Animation tour where I wore a terrible polyester suit and horrible gray pants, and I talked about uh, Disney's Oscars. And back in the day, I don't know if you guys are uh, uh, old enough to remember this, but they had like a fishbowl situation where you could kind of walk through and take this tour and look through the glass and see the animators down there drawing on the desks. So even though I couldn't be down there, Living my dream, I could be close to it. So I was this poor kid with my face pressed up against the glass who wanted to be down there so much. And uh, eventually, um, the training manager down there saw that I didn't have the money to pay for figure drawing classes. And just through the goodness of his heart, he let me um, uh, audit a couple of the figure drawing classes that the animators uh, were taking. And through that, I got better. Uh, my portfolio, I learned how to put a proper portfolio together. And then I got in after that. And so. That was, I think that's, that was the biggest break in the whole thing. And from there, I, I started, the first film I worked on was Pocahontas. I was an in-betweener, which means you're a cleanup animator. And then from there, I worked on Mulan and uh, Lilo and Stitch, which is an awesome film that we made down in Florida. And uh, after that was Brother Bear. And then I came to California in uh, 2004 as a story artist and worked on Bolt and then directed Tangled and now Zootopia. But it's always, I'm always surprised that how often, it's just been people's uh, generosity and graciousness that's really helped me out. Like even back when I was back in college, like he mentioned Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson, these guys who wrote this great book about Disney animation, the, the two of the nine old men. And uh, I didn't know who to turn to back in college because uh, Evergreen State College is a great school, but it's not an animation school. So I just wrote letters to people. I wrote letters to Chuck Jones, who's a great uh, cartoon director um, from you know the 1950s and stuff. And Chuck wrote me back. And Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson wrote me back. And uh, there were animators who, uh, just, just out of the goodness of their own heart, took the time to help out this kid who wanted to know more about what was going on. So if you have pursuits that you're into, and you think that you, know, you, you have someone in the, who's a professional out there who you admire and uh, think that you could you know, use a conversation with, I encourage you, especially now, because it's so easy to, to write to people on Twitter or drop in someone an email. Uh, because I think if you give people the chance um, to be forthcoming and gracious and to share what they know, I think you'll find, uh, you'll be pleasantly surprised as, as I was. Hi. Um, Hi. Oh, from hey. here, what do you think is the next step for Zootopia? Because like the world's so big, would you stay within like the city or would you probably go back to like probably, uh, dinosaurs? Oh, <laughs> uh, it is, I, once you guys see the film, you'll have to tell me what you think, but the, it is honestly, such a huge place. It is like the biggest uh, world we've ever created, and it's worlds within worlds. There are a couple districts that we showed you tonight. There's Tundra Town, Sahara Square, Rainforest District, Little Redentia. 
But there are, it was so hard to fit all of this into a 90-minute movie that there were different districts that we actually had to cut out of the, of, the, uh, of the film. There was Outback Island, which was an Australian district with all sorts of marsupial animals, lots of great pouch jokes. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and there was also this really awesome nocturnal district under the city in caves with bats and all sorts of like blind cave fish and all sorts of like, things like that. And so the world is huge. So if the movie does well, and I hope it does, I, because I'd love to come back to the world because you, you'll see it is just vast. And, um, the, the fact that the city actually functions as a real as a real place is all part of the making it uh, believable. We hired a really smart German guy to design the city. His name's Matthias Lechner, and he was like one of the most brilliant art directors in Europe. And he came over uh, to the United States, and because he's German, he likes to figure stuff out. So he figured out the air conditioning wall. He figured out all the multi-scale doors. We even talked to the the ADA, the American Disabilities Association. And we, and we brought them in, and they thought we were crazy. They're like, why are you asking us this? But we, we brought them in, and they said, if, if you had a person who was two inches tall, like a mouse, and a person who was 25 feet tall, like a giraffe, how would buildings work? How would trains work? And they went through, and they were very good. They were very good, and they stepped through the process of how uh, you would deal with that kind of thing with ramps and multiple scale staircases and sinks and water fountains that are on different levels. And so it's all very, very thought out. And, Honestly, the movie goes by in such a blur, I th you almost want to pause it to see all this massive detail that's, that's uh, built into the city. So I hope, I, 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 if we do another movie, I'd stay within the city just to kind of show the audience more of what we couldn't show this time. Hi, Hi. Um, You mentioned towards the beginning, uh, Robin Hood was kind of the inspiration for, for this film. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of uh, you know, some of those Disney classic films like The Jungle Book, and I grew up on those. So I was wondering if maybe, uh, uh, Nick Wilde's character is kind of modeled after Robin Hood, and if there are any other influences from those Disney classic films as we saw in the beginning. Oh yeah, oh definitely. I think you know, I really we looked at um, a lot of films from way back then because when they when they made Robin Hood, which was about 1974, they were also making films a little earlier. I think like Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Remember that? They had like some animated sequences in that where they had done animation drawings of those films, and all those guys, including Frank and Ollie, who wrote to me and helped me out were at the top of their game, so they really knew how to caricature animals and not lose what's specific about those animals and not just turn them into men walking around in animal suits. And that's what we tried to do with this film. We have a really amazing character designer whose name is Corey Loftus, and if you go online, you can look up his website. He's an incredible artist, and he did all the character designs for this film, and he did a great job in looking back at those Disney, uh, that, that legacy, and then bringing it into the modern world. And we also have access at Disney to this thing. Uh, it's called the Morgue, which is kind of a grim name, but it's also called the Animation Research Library, which is a place in Burbank where you can drive down and uh, you go into the secret building that's unmarked, and it's got a secret gate, and you go into the back, and they bring you inside, and it's this, uh, air, this sort of like highly temperature-controlled, ultra-safe building where they keep millions and millions and millions of pieces of Disney art. Everything back to the early Mickey shorts is there. Like when I was there, just two weeks ago, they had some drawings out from uh, Snow White, and they were cleaning them up, and you could see the coffee stains and cigarette burns on the animator's drawings, and it's incredible to hold this stuff in your hands with gloves, because they're <laughs> expensive, but, you, uh, but it's amazing to see this stuff in person, because think of all these people who have come to the studio and kind of given their talent to this art form over the years. We have a great respect for that. There was one time when they, uh, before we did Tangled, we went to the ARL and they brought out the original book 
that uh, opens the movie Sleeping Beauty. That's a, there's a live action segment in the beginning where the movie opens and there's this enormous golden book that was handmade and they showed us this thing and it's the size of this monitor down here. It's enormous and it's handmade, it's covered with precious metal and, uh, and inlaid with uh, semi-precious stones and inside are these hand-painted beautiful paintings by Ivan Durrell who was the art director. So there's all this amazing precious art and we, we that's, that's why people love this stuff so much I think because the everyone's poured themselves into it and it's we try to uphold that same standard even with the new films even though we're using computers rather than uh, an easel and paint nowadays. Anybody there? Hi. Hi. Um, I'm curious, since now, like most animated feature films are CGI, do you think there's any future for 2D films at all? Or is that like something of the 80s and 90s? No, no, totally. I mean, it's, it really is It's project dependent. Like if, um, if one of the directors came and said, I have this amazing idea that can only be told in 2D, we would totally support it, I think. I think with films like this, I think if you see this film in the theaters, you'll, you'll understand why. With this movie, it was, it was so big, and it was so important that the, that the city be believable and you could feel like it was a real world that you could step into. I don't know how you would do this film in, in 2D. I suppose you, you could, but it would feel very stylized, and I'm not sure if you would connect with the world and the characters in the same way. Um, but uh, everything that we do in CG has the same foundation as we used in, in 2D, and even, um, like on Tangled, uh, I had a great opportunity to work with Glenn Keane, who was the, the guy who animated Ariel way back when, that character that inspired me. So Glenn animated Ariel, he animated uh, the Beast from Beauty and the Beast, he animated Aladdin, and Glenn would sit there with our animators, uh, and they would come in with their scenes, they would pose them out and, and show their acting, and Glenn would sit down with a stylus at a Cintiq tablet, which you guys probably have here, and we would just draw over top. So you have this great 2D animator influencing what's going on and teaching our CG animators these principles that have not changed in 70, 80, 90 years of, of film animation. So that, tr that tradition keeps continuing as we, as we go. Right over there? Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, I was wondering, out of all the movies that you've worked on, who is your favorite character and brings your life? Oh, uh, gosh, that's tough. You know, I, I love the characters in uh, Tangle. That horse is fun. Um, but, uh, you know, I think this, this movie is great because this is sort of a dream project for me. Like, if you can imagine something that you've always wanted to do and suddenly uh, a studio goes, okay, you can make that, that dream project. This is that for me. This is, I've always wanted to work on a film with animals. I, love, I do love drawing animals. And um, I, I love that. Uh, and also, I always wanted to work with Jason Bateman. I'd, I'd, I'd watched Jason Bateman since, remember Silver Spoons? Silver Spoons was a long time ago. Yeah, Silver Spoons. The one, yeah, Silver, that's right. It was great, wasn't it? Anyway, uh, or Hogan Family. Um, but Jason, I've always been a fan of his because I love Arrested Development, and he's just got this charm about him that he can say the most horrible things that can be cutting and sarcastic, but you still love the guy. And the nice thing about uh, Jason, and this is true of Jennifer and Idris too, is like they're everything you want them to be as people. They're just as nice and wonderful and funny as, as you wish they were. And they all love cartoons. They love Disney. And uh, Jason has daughters that, that love Disney and have, you know, he, they have tortured him with Frozen, I'm sure. And, uh, and uh, you know, Jennifer has kids now. And so it's, it's great to see that, that that love of these films is actually in our actors. And so we, we don't have to go beg them to do these films. They really want to do it. And over there, hi. Hi. So I was wondering, as we're going to 
from the concept art of, to the film to the exponential project, do you yep. find it hard? Were there certain things that you found hard to compromise on? Like things that you couldn't possibly animate or maybe a storyline you wanted to follow but couldn't? Oh, well, you know what? There was, uh, I should talk, talking about how the story kind of evolves, there was, there, there was a version of this film. Um, the first, we, okay, so how we, how we put these films together, we will cut together rough versions of these films with rough storyboards and what's called scratch dialogue, which is basically us just going into the recording booth and recording it. Like, I would be Nick, and Rich would be Judy, and, and or, you know, we'd all kind of do a rough copy. And there was a version of this film that uh, had Nick, the fox, as the main character, and we had that in place for about five screenings. And the, the trouble that we discovered with that is that since Nick is a cynical character, uh, and uh, Nick was introducing you into the world of Zootopia. He didn't like the world, he didn't like Zootopia very much. The city had been kind of bad to him and he'd been kind of beaten down by it. And so it was very hard for the audience to fall in love with the city and care whether it uh, survived or not. And so we actually uh, flipped um, the characters so that the, uh, around screening five, so that Judy was the main character because she's more optimistic and she has these dreams and, and she believes that these ideals exist in the city. So that when she gets there, she can start to see kind of harsh reality creep in. And it worked much better story-wise. But in the old version, one thing I do miss is that uh, in the old version, predators and prey were clearly not getting along. The prey animals didn't trust the predators. Uh, the predators actually had to wear uh, dog shock collars that kept them in line, which were called tame collars. It's very funny. It was very funny, comically funny. Um, but uh, predators couldn't express themselves. They couldn't behave like predators or run around or roar or do anything like that. And so Nick found a workaround to get those collars off in the secret speakeasy that was called Wild Times. He bought this warehouse down by the docks. He painted all the windows black, so on the outside it looked like an abandoned warehouse. But inside was this incredible predator amusement park where they could run and do whack-a-mole and do all these crazy things. And we built, we said, that is an amazing idea. That will never, ever leave the movie. We built every inch of it. And it was all supposed to look like, not just like a, a random machine-made theme park, it was supposed to look like a handmade theme park, like someone built it from scratch, which is the hardest thing to do in CG. So we had people who worked for an entire year building this incredible set, and we cut it out of the movie. We cut the whole thing out and because the story changed, because when it changed to Judy's story, there was, it didn't have a place in the movie anymore. So as beautiful as that set is, it's gone. We just had to chuck it out, and we had to break it to our crew who had taken a year of their lives to put their work into this amazing place and say, it's gone. And that's typical of what we do with these films. It's true of Pixar as well. Like, they'll throw out huge ideas when we make um, changes like that. And in the movie, if you look very closely, it's only in one shot of the movie. There's a scene uh, at the, toward the end of the film where Judy is apologizing to Nick in this sort of abandoned tunnel down by the river. And up on the hill, is a, an abandoned warehouse that you'll see with the windows cracked, and that is Wild Times, the most expensive backdrop <laughs> ever created for a Disney film. So I hope that if the movie does well, that we can come back and we can actually find a place for it in like uh, the next one. But it, it's, oh, it was awesome. It was awesome. It's like, you know. We were in special features. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I think we have time for one or two more, and then we'll wrap it up. So you talked about, you talked a lot about like making the world feel real to the viewer. And I was recently reading an article in the Times about how virtual reality was just added as a category of like Sundance, the, uh, Sundance film. Festival. Oh, that's cool. Uh, do you see any uh, trend in like the animated film industry of moving towards virtual reality it, as in the medium? 
It would be, you know, it'd be really great. I think just the, the computers are just catching up with the ability to do that kind of stuff. There was a, uh, do you know Oculus Rift, that sort of system that allows you to look around? There's um, one of our uh, effects artists actually built part of the police station for Oculus Rift where you could step into one of the rooms and look around. And it was amazeballs. It was really, it's really cool. It's, and uh, to actually be able to shoot a film like that would be really interesting. I mean, you have to be able to understand like where they would be looking to control the storytelling, so I'm not sure how that would work, but we have this new rendering system called Hyperion that we used on Big Hero 6, which is the last film we did, and this one, which allows you to do real-time rendering of very, very complex lighting situations. So it's possible, like, if they can make the technology work, that it, it would be it would be cool. It'd be a cool challenge, maybe for a short first, but uh, it's it's pretty uh, pretty remarkable because the stuff that happens in this film with natural and artificial lighting is beyond anything we could have done two years ago. It just we, we just could not have made this film two years ago just because the technology is constantly being pushed to the limit. And uh, we're always afraid we're going to break it. But we, it's, we have very, very smart people who are trying to keep up with it. But I'd, I'd love to see someone do something like that. Hi. Hi. Um, so my question is, uh, what steps or uh, advice would you give to aspiring animators who would like to work for Disney or Pixar? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's um, these days with CG animation, there's a lot of stuff online that is really valuable. Some of our best animators actually came through uh, animationmentor.com and other online schools. Kira Letamaki, who's uh, a young woman who was the lead animator on Hops and who's a, a, just an amazing natural animator, came through Animation Mentor and there are many other schools. And there's I th even just like resources online that can kind of get you ahead and kind of acquaint you with what the challenges are of animation. I think just, you know, being as plugged in as you can and asking questions, just like I said earlier, like if you want to send questions to animators at Disney or directors or writers at Disney, if you have specific questions, I think that's great. Um, I think uh, for animators, I think drawing helps. I think traditional art skills really help. Not all of our animators draw. The guy who was the lead on Nick Wilde, uh, a guy named Tony Smead, and he's a brilliant animator, he's like almost a savant, and he doesn't draw at all, but he has this gift for finding these naturalistic poses and this amazing, subtle acting, and I don't know where it comes from. So everyone's different, um, but it's, I think in, even in getting out online and connecting with a community of people, uh, animation-wise, who will support what you love, because that's what drove me a lot, that's why, I had an easier time with that time that I was waiting to get in is because I had people around me who loved the medium, who were enthusiastic about film, who loved animation, who kind of geeked out about the same things I did. And once you get in, it is a great community. It's a pretty small community. It's a couple thousand people, and we all sort of know each other, you know, from the studios in, in Burbank, you know, DreamWorks and, uh, and Disney and, uh, and Sony up to Pixar and... Uh, uh, in Emeryville, over to the studios in France, and you know, it's we we all know each other, and we all kind of grew up together, and it's great to see new people come in because it's a it's a community of people who are who are just like you, who just who love film, who love storytelling, who love acting, and it's for me, I always thought animation is a great combination of all these things that I loved. I love I love music, I love film, I love art, and it was the only art form that I ever found that brought all that together, and also. Uh, didn't require me to be alone. You know, it let me be in a group. It let me uh, have friends that I work with over and over again. So it's it's a great job and it's worth pursuing. So, yeah. good luck. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> cool. Uh, 
Any other questions? Thank you, guys.